Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. I'm glad to have you all here for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. With Christmas just a few days away, we're taking a break, however briefly, from covering the latest news on the political front. Can't we all use a break just about now? So today I'm talking with New York Times bestselling author Bruce Feiler. Bruce is quite simply one of the most interesting people I've interviewed in my years at GPB. The last time we talked, he just published his book, The First Love Story, Adam and Eve and Us, which led me to completely reassess what I'd always believed about the relationship between Adam and Eve. Yes, they were thrown out of the Garden of Eden, but Bruce wrote that they actually went on to have a happy and fulfilling marriage. I'm still thinking about that two-plus years later. Bruce grew up in Savannah and still has deep friendships and family there and in Atlanta, although he now lives with his wife and twin daughters in Brooklyn. His New York Times bestsellers include Walking the Bible, which was turned into a PBS special, and The Council of Dads, which NBC television turned into a primetime series. And now, Bruce has written a book which comes along at just the right time. It's called Life is in the Transitions, and it's another example of his lifelong effort to help us find real meaning and value in our lives. In this case, he writes about the hundreds of people he interviewed to learn how they had coped with major life changes, losing a job, getting a divorce, and the like. His book tells their stories and offers us insights about how we can come out better people after experiencing what he calls lifequakes. And the book just happened to be published just as we're all facing the devastating lifequake of the pandemic. I talked with Bruce for a program sponsored by the William Bremen Jewish Heritage Museum just a few weeks ago. In some ways, this book, Life is in the Transitions, has been a book that is a culmination of a journey that I'm going to say began when you're five years old. Do you know why I'm picking five years old? Because that's when I broke my leg. That's exactly right. Five years old, for people who don't know this story, you're in Savannah, your family lives in a subdivision where all the streets are named for Confederate officers. You lived in what, Robert E. Lee Highway? Robert E. Lee Boulevard. I, I keep assuming that the Times are gonna catch up with this neighborhood and they're gonna change the names, but- well, I hope so. I hope they do. <laughs> but okay, you're riding your bicycle and you get into a horrific accident. A car hits you, knocks you out, breaks your femur, and you're in a full body cast for months, right? Okay, so that happened when you're five. But we move ahead three decades when you got your diagnosis of bone cancer and the cancer was in that bone, that femur. And I think it was, the, and the cancer led to your book, Council of Dads, um, which people are familiar with because they know the NBC series in which you talk about, if you're not there, who were the six best friends who can mentor your daughter. And, and I think in a way that began you on this journey to transit. That was because that transition, the cancer transition started you thinking about transitions in a way you never had before. I think it's safe to say, yes? 
Well, first of all, you devilish genius, you. You've got me crying here. We're three minutes into this uh, conversation. Um, that's a beautiful story. That's a correct story. Let me frame the story this way. There was this moment on this journey that became Life is in the Transitions where I pulled a book off of a shelf one day and the whole shelf opened up, you know, that kind of like, and there was another room. <laughs> and, and what I discovered in that other room is this idea that has consumed me, that was new for me at the time. Um, and it's one of the things that, that is resonating about this book out in the world now. And that is this idea that our lives kind of have a shape to them and that that shape is determined sort of by how we look at the world. So you mentioned walking the Bible and the many years I spent in the ancient world. So in the ancient world, they don't have linear time. So they think that life is a cycle because that's what the seasons are to every season, turn, turn, turn. The Bible actually introduces the idea of linear time. And so if you go in the middle ages, they think that the they think that life is a kind of staircase up to middle age. You peak at middle age and then it's downhill from there. And that's a big idea because it's opposite of how we were raised, where middle age is sort of the bottom. Okay. And so let's just fast forward to a hundred plus years ago in the birth of science, then suddenly uh, they're starting to say that life follows a linear arrow of progress. Okay. So so many ideas that we grew up with, those of us who were born in the 20th century. Piaget, children have development. Freud, sexual development. Uh, Erickson, the eight stages of moral development. The five stages of grief. The hero's journey. All of these ideas are, are linear constructs of life. And this reaches its peak in the 70s, where Gail Sheehy writes this book, Passages, that says everyone does the same thing in their 20s. Everyone does the same thing in their 30s. And then everyone has this midlife crisis at 39 and a half, and that pop introduces and popularizes the notion of the midlife crisis. And this sort of, that book sells 20 million copies and this just becomes a fact. So that's how they looked at the world. It turns out that's total bunk. <laughs> and that now we know the world is much more complex and has twists and turns, but we haven't changed the way we live our lives. So I bring up that sort of piece of, uh, of the idea because this is what happened to me. So yes, I'm born in Savannah, Georgia, five generations of Jews in the South. I break my leg when I'm five. I get hit by a car. Um, I'm on in, in, in this body cast for two months. And then that's the only medically interesting thing that happens to me for decades. I go on, I live my life, I leave the South, I go Northeast to college, I go to Japan, I start writing letters home. When I get back to Georgia, everyone says, I loved your letters. I was like, that's great. Have we met? And I'm like, I should write a book about this. It's interesting to me and all these people. I write this book, Learning to Bow. It doesn't happen this way. I saw my first book at 24. And this is what I do for the next two decades. I, As you said, I joined the circus. Uh, and then I spent a year in Nashville writing about country music. I have this idea to retrace the Bible. I go back and forth in my 30s and write these books, they become bestsellers and I'm on TV, I get married and I have children. You know what that is, Bill? That's the linear life. Like that's the fantasy that we all have yeah. until in my 40s, I just get walloped by life. Like boom, boom, boom. First is the cancer, I'm 43, a new dad. Suddenly I've got a cancer that only 100 Americans a year get. I'm on crutches for two years. That's the first 
nonlinear event in my life. Suddenly the linear life is gone. That happens to be when the risk great recession is. So suddenly, you know, my family is struggling. I almost go bankrupt. And then my dad in Georgia, uh, who's struggling with Parkinson's, gets very depressed. He's never depressed a minute in his life. He tries to take his life six times in 12 weeks. And so suddenly I'm in this situation where life is coming at me in all directions. And I'm looking around like, how do I get through this? And that's when I realized like there wasn't a book out there for when you are in one of these moments. And that's that's the beginning of this idea. Like I need to go out and find out I'm not alone in this situation. What do you do when you're in one of these life quakes? I, I do want to go back to counsel of dads just to the extent of saying that you point out in the book, you say, when, when all this is going on, when your dad is having, he's trying to kill himself, um, your cancer, the family business, um, you say, I lost control of the story bouncing around in my head for a while. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I was going. I was lost. What happens when we misplace the plot of our lives? And, and I think to some extent, coming up with this notion just of doing the Council of Dads, assuring your daughters will have male uh, mentors, male role models to, to move forward with, was one of your ways of addressing and trying to gain back some control over your life, which is why I say in some ways, it's the predecessor to this book that we're now talking about tonight. Fair enough? No, it's interesting. We're talking a lot about my parents here um, who, <laughs> sort of help me and you know, become a creative person and support this crazy life that I wanted to live. I actually want to invoke my in-laws here for a second because they really pushed me in this direction that you're pushing me in, which is I think that for a long time I saw first the cancer and then especially this experience and life is in the transitions. I think I saw them as a as a rupture with the past, as something different from, say, growing up in Georgia, from uh, walking the Bible and these books about ancient religion. But I think that you're making a subtle point that took me a long time to realize, which is that there's this connection between them. First of all, I think there's a connection to having grown up in Georgia, and particularly as a Jew in Georgia, where these two storytelling traditions sort of collided in me. Also, I think it's something about having spent a more than a decade of my life going back and forth to the Middle East, immersed in the greatest stories ever told, is that I thought a lot about narrative and about the role of narrative in shaping identity and in shaping culture. And as powerful as that connection is, there's a big difference. And so if I could just take a second and invite everybody listening to us to try to hear that story that's going on in the back of your head. It's the story of where you came from, the story of who you are, you know, where you came from, where you're going, what's important to you. If you got a call right now that a loved one was in the hospital and you had to rush to the hospital, that story you're telling about your relationship with that loved one, like that is the story of who we are. And the big difference, Bill, between today and when I first started being interested in storytelling and in the ancient world where the idea that storytelling could build culture was born is that we now know 
because we can peer inside the human brain, we now know that we are wired for story. And we know that that's how we process the world. And we know that that story you tell yourself is not part of you in a fundamental way. It is you in an actual way. Like life is the story that you tell yourself. So I think that the connection between the Georgia part of me, the writing letters from Japan part of me, the writing five books about the Bible uh, uh, part of me is realizing that that act of storytelling is fundamentally what happens to us when we hit a crisis. So when we hit a wall, when we get into a problem, when our life swerves off the road, that is a breach in the normal. And the only way to, to heal a breach in the normal of your life is with storytelling. So uh, if I can go into a middle section of your book, Life in the Transitions, uh, <laughs> you tell us a story about uh, the great poet, Dante Alighieri. You, you say that in 1302, he was exiled from his hometown of Florence in a political feud which was the moment when his story that he'd been telling himself was disrupted. And he would tell us he wandered for years around Tuscany. You describe him as being heartsick and bereft before finally accepting he would never return home. So having been put in that situation, he's got a choice. As all of the characters in your book do, they come to a moment where the narrative has been disrupted by some crisis. In some cases, it's a crisis that was foisted upon them and others, are, they, they make choices that nevertheless call for them to rethink their life stories. Okay, so what does Dante do once he accepts this, you tell us? He writes a divine comedy, one of the greatest works of Western literature and the beginning of it, you put the first stanza in, midway in our life's journey, I went astray from the straight road and woke to find myself alone in a dark wood, describing that moment when he lost, as you did, he lost touch with the narrative and had to find a way back. Yeah? My single favorite phrase gets to this moment that I uncovered with this book. What happened with this book was two things, okay? So I actually did two things in this moment when I decide to go on this journey. One is I seek out what becomes hundreds of people all ages, all walks of life, all 50 states who had been through similar life quakes as I was going through. But then I also start combing through kind of the history of Western ideas. And you mentioned Dante, you could have easily mentioned Augustine, you could have mentioned F. Scott Fitzgerald when he has a nervous breakdown and goes into the mountains of North Carolina. You could have mentioned everybody has one of these stories. But my favorite phrase of this, as you know, because it kind of is laced all through life is in the transitions, is this uh, what turned out to be an Italian phrase originally from Latin, which is lupus and fabula. And lupus is wolf. wolf. So fabula is the fairy tale. Like that's our lives when everything is going well. Like that's the fantasy of our lives. Lupus is the wolf, okay? And the Italians use this expression to mean, you know, speak of the devil. Like just when everything's going well, boom, lupus and fabula, the wolf shows up. And that gets to the point, right? So you know, a lot of this notion um, about storytelling gets locked in when we're, when we're really young, when superhero stories um, are so important to us and fairy tales are so important to us. And we want to think of our lives as a fairy tale and we think we're the hero and we're going to have the happy ending. But guess what? That's not what makes it a fairy tale. What makes it a fairy tale is that the wolf shows up. 
It could be an ogre. It could be a dragon. It could be a troll. It could be a tornado. It could be a downsizing. It could be a death. It could be a pandemic. And our instinct is to want to strangle the wolf and say, how dare you ruin the story? But the wolf is making the story you, because you have to figure out how to get over, around, or under the wolf. I remember when I was reading, you and I were talking off air about my children. So I'm the dad of identical twin daughters. And, and I read to them when they were very young. Then they became readers and they kicked me out of the room. But then I got about four or five years in there where I could read to them again at night before now they've kicked me out of the room because they want to do their own reading. And one of the books I read to them was A Wrinkle in Time and I had never read it. And so you've got Meg, right? The father is dispatched off, right? This is not long after I almost died. And she has got to go planetarily hopping to find the dad. And we get to the dad part of the story and I shut the book. I've never read the book. And I say, what's going to happen? Who's going to save the day? And what do my 10-year-old daughter say? Dad. (laughs) They wouldn't say it now at 15. But at 10, they say, Dad, I'm like, I don't even know what's going to happen. I'm like, nope. The dad is not going to save the day. The hero has to save the day. Who's the hero? Meg is the hero. And that's the point of the when the wolf shows up. And that's the point for Dante. When you get lost in the woods, that's when it becomes a story. And if there's one thing I learned, and if everybody listening to us takes one thing from this conversation is, you have to be the hero of your own story. I, I love that. Okay, so I want to tie in another one of your books to this conversation, which I think is perfect. Um, the first love story, Adam and Eve. One of the things that's extraordinary about that book, I love, you know how much I love that book, oh, because you completely redefine our understanding of Adam and Eve. And you do it using what you say is the more authentic reading of that story in Genesis. But here's the point. You tell us that Adam and Eve, look, they face the biggest wolf imaginable. They're thrown out of the Garden of Eden, for God's sake. <laughs> Satan appears before them, and then God exiles them. But you point out that that's not the end of the story. That's just the beginning of the story in that book, which is why that book is so wonderful. Because they go on and essentially have a happy marriage. Yeah, Cain and Abel are a mess. But you say they go on and they find a way, they love each other and their love is a model for all of us. And I love that because that's what you talk about here. I mean, what bigger wolf is there than what they face? And and there's a couple in your book. Jamie and Rebecca Levine are a couple who went through a transition together, right? First of all, let me just, first of all, that's a beautiful question. And gosh, I just love being with you. And I hope everyone listening to you knows how, what a treasure you are, Bill. So I'm just so thrilled to be here. And yes, Adam and Eve, having kicked out of, being kicked out of Eden, could have split and ended humanity right there. What do they do? They come back together and they have two children. That's great. They've solved the problem. One of those children murders the other one. Now what's going to happen? They could split again. And they come back together and they have Seth because it's the Seth who becomes the link to all the others in the story. There's an example of a life quake, you know, and a transition bringing them uh, back together. And this, this is what I encountered over and over again. Jamie Levine, it's my, one of my wife's favorite, favorite stories in this book, I have to say. So Jamie grows up actually in Worcester, Massachusetts, and uh, he's hard, his father works at a, a shoe factory 
because that's like the one of the shoe capitals of New England and he's laid off. And so Jamie gets this like chip on his shoulder. He's going to be like the savior and make the money that the dad never made. And he's hard driving and he's the head of this. This plays on this sports team and he's the head of this, you know, elite extracurricular. He's going to breeze into Harvard. He's turned down. Uh, so he doesn't get to go to Harvard. Um, he goes to another college, but then he drives and drives and drives and gets himself into Wharton, the top uh, business school. From there, he gets a job at uh, Goldman Sachs. Like that's the job everybody wants. He rises, you know, he's on his way to partner. He moves to London. He marries a woman who's a management consultant. And like, they are like Barbie and Ken of like that uh, highly educated set. Uh, they have a child, everything is going well, except that her organs are not working. Yeah. And she starts to crash. And her Billy Rubin number, uh, which is her kidney number, uh, if I have the right organ, um, begins to crash. And they're basically, he's like working at the, at the job during the day, sitting at the hospital at night. And they're basically waiting, um, uh, waiting for the day that she's going to die because there's no, there's no, um, uh, there's no drug that can do it until like the neighbor's brother's son's sister's uh, boyfriend reads an article in the Boston Globe that there's one doctor in Boston who's got a cocktail that can make her live. Three days later, he's on the plane. A week later, the daughter is there. A month later, they move to Boston and they've reordered their lives. The, the, her number slowly begins to rise. It saves her life. But every single night for the rest of her life. She's got to be on this device that processes um, her body. And he's trying to like make partner and he's trying to be with her at night and trying to be Superman. And he hits a wall. And as he said to me, um, I got fired. Yeah. He's climbed to the top. He's at the job he's always wanted. And he gets fired. This, as you know, in the words of my book is an involuntary life quake. And it absolutely saves the family. It saves the family because he realizes he's got to do this census because what happens in a life quake, what's happening to everybody listening to this conversation right now is that it is a meaning vacuum when the sort of the normal building blocks of what gives you identity is just sucked out of the room. And you have to ask what everybody listening to us is asking. Like, what's important to me? Do I want to work? Do I want to spend more time with my family? Do I want to move? All the questions you ask in a life transition. Um, and he ultimately downsizes, takes a different job, becomes a different manager. You know, they have another kid. Like the, the, the wife joins the school. She's having, you know, sort of struggles adapting to all of this. And he rebalances what people do in a life quake. They shape shift in the language that I sort of came up with. They rebalance what's important to them and reset their lives, basically just in time. And this goes back to what you talked about a little earlier, which is this notion of what is the shape of our lives? And one of the things that I think is so interesting that you ask people is what do they, how would they describe the shape of their lives so I'm off doing these conversations. And even before I started the conversations, I start to realize, because I'm back to me stumbling into that room in the library that no one told me was there, uh, I start asking people, like everywhere I go, like what shape is your life? Yeah. Just to see what people would say. Yeah. 
And a lot of people say what I would have said. If you had asked me this question five years ago, I would have said that my Shed the Shepherd life was like a line, kind of like your time. It had some ups, it had some downs, but it was basically a line. So I'm talking, actually, I'll credit him. Uh, I'll do the behind the scenes here. Uh, I'm talking to my friend, Michael, actually. And I say to him one day, Michael's had a kind of a complicated life. He grows up, he's sort of estranged from his family, he moves to New York, he, he's, he's in the beauty business and in the art business, and he's gay and he's had a gay marriage that has failed and now he's dating again. And so I say to him, what shape is your life? And he says, a heart. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I'm asking you, what shape is your life? Like, what's the trajectory of your life? He says, a heart. And I'm like, no, 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 you're, you're, maybe I'm not asking my question, like you keep saying to me. Maybe I'm asking my question wrong. And he's like, no, maybe you're not hearing what I'm saying. <laughs> my life, Bruce, is a heart. I don't care so much about the ups and downs of my life. The most important thing to my life is my relationships. And if they're going well, then I don't really care how I'm doing professionally or personally. And it was like one of those moments, Bill, it was like, whoa, like, I am missing something relatively fundamental about how people think about their lives. So I kept doing this and then I continue into these conversations, right? So I've had all these people all over the country who've had all these life experiences. And then the last question I ask them is what shape is your life? And the answers are all over the place originally. Like yeah. some people say a line, some people say a stock market, some people say a winding river, some people say a heart, some people say a house, right? Some people say a daffodil or some people say a piece of lettuce or- What's yours? What's your shape? So I'm a line. I'm like a conventional person in this, in this thing. And I'm like you're a really boring a person. person. You're not a, you're an adventurer. You're a guy who goes out and seeks adventure and new opportunity. You're, so it, 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 <laughs> for a long time, this feels like a party, like a party game in college at 3 a.m. And this is going nowhere. But I have this like team of people and we're analyzing this. And I'm like, we got to find it. We got to find it. So we go back over and then one day, like, the, the coin falls in the slots and the sevens come up. And what I realize is that these, these shapes fall into buckets. So there's people who give lines, winding river, a road, a stock market. There are people who give these geometric shapes, the house, the heart, and there are people who give objects. Yeah. And then what I, so I, in sort of this long process, which I will leave off stage, I came to realize we have what I call the ABCs of meaning, okay? These are the building blocks of what give us identity. Mm -hmm. You go back a century ago, most people had to live where their parents wanted them to live, do what their parents wanted them to do, believe what their parents wanted them to believe, love who their parents wanted them to love. The good news is we now can change all of that. The bad news is it's very hard and we struggle. So the way we do it are these three building blocks of meaning. The A is agency. That's what we do, create, make. I think the reason I'm aligned is because I'm a creator and I'm a maker and therefore I like to do things and go on trips and follow journeys. So I'm agency driven. B is belonging, right? That's our relationships, our family, our friend, our co-religionists, our colleagues, our whatever, our community, our political movement, whatever it might be. And the C is a cause. That's something higher than ourselves that we give back, okay? So what happens is it turns out that the people who give a line tend to be agency first, the people who tend to give a heart or a house or belonging first, and the people who give an object or cause first. So everybody ranks them. We all have all three of them in us. So I would be an ABC because I'm very agency oriented. I'm an incredibly involved dad. 
and cause is not the biggest thing in my life, okay? My wife, she works with entrepreneurs. She started an organization. She helps them in 50 countries and cities around the world. They're, they have an outlet endeavor in Atlanta. Um, she's cause-oriented, like she's cause agency belonging. Like she tolerates the rest of us, but she's really motivated by, by giving back. So by the way, what are you before I go any further? You know, I was trying to figure that out. Like I'm, I am footprints in a forest Wow. Uh, going off into various paths and getting lost looking at various things because I love to find new things to really focus. Uh, right now, my daughter is home, my 24-year-old from Brooklyn. Um, she's really into K-pop. So I've really gone on this journey learning about all the K-pop groups with her, and it's really fun to do that. I am into horses. And so when I really go off on a horse riding binge, I learn everything. I read every book on her. So I sort of see me as these footprints out in the woods having fun going in various places. I, here's what I want to do, though. I think one of the most interesting shapes in your book is Tammy. Is it Trottier? Is that how you Trottier, say it? yeah. From the Turtle Mountain Indian Reservation. Tell us about Tammy and what her shape is. So... Here's the thing to understand about shape, and I'll tell T Tammy's story for a second. The thing to understand about shape is that, like everything else in life, it's nonlinear and it changes. So that's the that's the, the sort of the premise that I want to begin with, because that's what happens in a time of change. I mean, even the story that you just told, okay, your daughter's off in Brooklyn living her life, okay, these passions that you pursue, to me, I listen to your story and I hear footprints, like that's a cause thing. Like footprints are something that, you know, that you're making an impression, you know, and your life devoted to the arts and devoted to storytelling and devoted to journalism and devoted to bringing people in new places. That's a cause part of you. The agency part of you is the person who goes digging and goes on the journey. And that's what you would have been doing one set of journeys in 2020. But then your daughter comes home and suddenly, boom, your B elevates and you're going to go on this journey uh, with her. And that's what happens. We shape shift in, in times of transition in our lives. You asked me earlier about me. Right, right now, when I watch the news about what's happening with the virus and the pandemic and the quarantine, I've got, I've got teenagers like, I'm actually not watching it through the prism of how it affects me. Like, if I had to stay inside for, you know, the next uh, six months, uh, 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 that would be disappointing. But I could do it. I'm looking at it entirely through the prism of my daughters. Like, they need to be out there in the world. And so I'm willing to downplay my agency in, in the service of my belonging right now. And that's what we're all doing. Tammy Trotti is a good example. So Tammy is, is born in this Indian reservation on the Canadian, uh, the Canadian border of North Dakota. And she's the youngest of about, uh, I don't know, four, five, six, as I recall. And her parents run basically the convenience store uh, in town. And she doesn't talk for the first large chunk of her life. And her siblings want nothing to do. Like, oh, go take her sister with you to the market. And I'm like, really, do we have to? And the parents sit the children down and say, who wants to take over basically the family general store and three hands goes up and she's like, no, I want out of here. So she goes to the big city, gets a degree, goes on to the bigger city and gets a PhD in clinical psychology. And she has entered kind of the Western medicine 
she's left her native name behind and she's going by her Western name and she has turned her back and like I'm fleeing the family and I'm heading toward, you know, the larger world until she hits a wall. She gets married. She wants to have a child. It's challenging to her. She finds that she's not so welcome in her workplace because she's an indigenous person and they are not able to see this indigenous person, especially a woman, as somebody skilled uh, who can who can enter, you know, this hard driving uh, kind of academic world that she's trying to to enter into. And what does she do? This is a crisis. She shape shifts and she goes back to her sense of belonging and she goes back she reclaims her uh, indigenous name. She starts studying you know, tra traditional um, non-Western medicine. She goes into the animal iconography um, of her tribe and she, dis and she stumbles onto this turtle. And this turtle is the symbol of healing. Now, of course, this is meaningful to me uh, because in Walking the Bible, when I was on crutches for two, I mean, excuse me, in Council of Dads, when I was on crutches for two years, the, the, a turtle becomes incredibly symbolic to me because I learned that 200 years ago in France, uh, these flaneurs, these walkers, used to take turtles for a walk and let the turtle set the pace. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, take up. So my personal, literally, my personal slogan in life is take a walk with a turtle and behold the world in pause. She finds the turtle in native medicine. I interviewed her in the room I'm sitting in right now. She actually flew from North Dakota for this conversation. And I was like, oh my gosh, like we're, you know, whatever, Jungian siblings here. <laughs> she goes back to the reservation. She opens, she's the first with two friends, the first Native American all-woman mental health facility in, in the tribal lands in North Dakota. And she's merging her Western medicine knowledge with her, you know, Native uh, indigenous uh, traditional medicine past to try to reach people who need this help. And what is that? Well, That's a shape shift. I'll continue my conversation with Bruce Feiler, author of Life is in the Transitions, right after this break. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Let's continue my conversation with New York Times bestselling author Bruce Feiler. His new book is Life in the Transitions, a look at how we find our way through some of the most difficult crises in our lives. So let's be clear about something. You make the point that virtually none of us escape life quakes, that each, there, there are very few people anywhere who get through without the narrative that we've put in our heads and imagine is going to shape our lives for the, for, for until we die. Uh, that it's not upended in some way. Again, in some cases, voluntary, in many cases, involuntary. But we all go through them, right? So let me say this, Bill. I did not set out on this journey looking for life quakes, looking for life transitions. I set out on a simple question. No one knows how to tell their story anymore. What can I do to help? And the way I'm going to help is I'm going to ask people Tell me the story of your life. That was the first question. I asked 225 people, and that led to this two hours. I, I basically said, tell me the story of your life in 15 minutes. Nobody took less than an hour. Now, I did interrupt them, but like, and I just listened very intently, and here's what I learned. And at the end of it, I had 1,000 hours of interviews, 6,000 pages of transcripts. I spent a year coding these, and the big idea that emerged from this is that 
as I said earlier, the linear life is dead. The idea that we're going to have one job, one relationship, uh, you know, one spirituality, one sexuality, one political set of beliefs, one source of happiness from adolescence to assisted living, like that's dead. That's been replaced by what I call the nonlinear life. And the backbone of this is that we, we have, we face in our lives, this is what the data from this project show, three dozen disruptors in the course of our lives. It could be as small as, you know, twisting your ankle. <laughs> um, it could be as big as wrecking your car. It could be uh, new responsibilities at work. It could be firing, being fired. It could be losing a loved one all over. And most of the one every 12 to 18 months. That's much faster than people think. That's more often than most people see a dentist. But go see your dentist. Um, most of these we get through, but one in 10 of these, or more likely kind of a clumping of them, a pileup as I call it, become bigger. These are the life quakes. And I use this term life quake because it's higher on the Richter scale of consequences and they have aftershocks that last for years. And you've alluded to this several times, so let me just slow down and just make the point it turns out that basically half of these are voluntary and half are involuntary. So 53% are involuntary. So an involuntary life quake is losing your job, losing a loved one, your spouse cheats on you, uh, your house burns down. That's an involuntary life quake. But 47%, that's no small number, are voluntary. You leave your job because you want to start something else. You change religion. You cheat on your spouse, right? And, you know, I, I looked at these numbers. I was born in 1964. And I looked at these numbers and I thought, cool, like 47% are voluntary. Like we're embracing the opportunity of the nonlinear age. But I have all the, had all these millennials, you know, and you have a millennial daughter unless she's Gen Z. Uh, I had these young people in my office and they were like, whoa. 53% are involuntary, like I can't control my life. They were kind of traumatized um, uh, by this. And, but here's the thing, like the life quake can be voluntary or involuntary, but the life transition that grows out of it must be voluntary. Like you have to choose to lean in. And that's what led me into this space of talking about transitions. And so yes, to your point, to me, the signature piece of data here is that the average length of the transitions that come out of the life quakes is five years. So when you think three to five in a lifetime, four, five, six years, that's 25 years. That's half of our adult lives we're spending in transitions. This is basically a lifetime sport that nobody's teaching us how to play, which is in some ways what I tried to write here, which is a rule book for how to play this game because and, and we're all do, going through uh, them. You or someone you know is going through one right now. So, uh you talk about the stages of a, a life quake. Uh, first one is the long goodbye. What does that mean? I would say the life quake doesn't have stages. The, the transitions do. So you get into a transition. That, that, I'm sorry. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and people have one or two reactions. Either they make a 212 item to-do list and they say, I'm going to get through it this weekend and I'm going to be like a champion. Or they are like in a fetal position on the bed. Like no one, this has never happened to anybody. Neither are really true. And look at enough of them and certain patterns become appear. So the first pattern is that there are, there are three phases to them. And so the three phases are the long goodbye. And in the long goodbye, you, you, you have to confront the fact that this is an emotional experience. Like the top three emotions people struggle with are fear, 
How am I going to live without this person? How am I going to pay my bills? Like, you know, wh what am I going, what am I going to do? How can I live without these limbs I've just lost in a car wreck north of Grand Rapids to, to name one person? Um, the second biggest emotion is uh, sadness. I miss that person. I miss having a job. I miss the life before the pandemic, right? I miss being able to see my friends. I'm just sad. And the third was surprising to me, it's shame. Like I'm ashamed I lost my job or I'm ashamed I have to ask for help or I'm ashamed that I have a child with a drinking problem. And when someone asks me at the grocery store, you know, how's the family? I can't answer it because I'm ashamed. And by the way, that's not gendered. Men and women feel it the same. So you have these emotions. The second part of the long goodbye is sort of using a ritual to say goodbye to. That's why people, you know, they, they journal or they jump out of airplanes or they burn candles or they uh, bury things in the backyard. They, 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 or, they, or you they have ritualize. one woman. I didn't mean to interrupt you, except that I have to say another remarkable thing is the woman who keeps the stethoscope that she used oh. to listen to her daughter's heart before her daughter died. It, it brings tears to my eyes just thinking about her story. Well, it's, it's, what's remarkable about that story is that that's what she feels about it. So her name is Peggy Stack. She's, I believe, the one of the few remaining full-time religious reporters at a major newspaper. And the reason she mm -hmm. is because she lives in Salt Lake City and she covers the Mormon church. And so she marries um, her former uh, employee at this ma uh, religion magazine that she runs. They move back to Salt Lake City. Uh, they have twin daughters and one of them is born basically with half a heart. And the doctor says, I'm going to take, I need to take this uh, daughter of yours to a different hospital. Pretend you never had her. Ugh. And Peggy says, I, for a few hours, I thought, yeah, that's right. I'll just pretend I never had this daughter. The husband went with the other daughter and then came back and, and she says, I'm going to pretend. And he's like, no, she's a human being and she's part of our family and she's always going to be. So they head down this incredible, I can't remember exactly, two, three years, surgeries, procedures, barely life. You know, they go into incredible debt and they're just struggling to keep her alive. Eventually she dies. And what she says to me is so interesting. Looking back, it was the best time of our marriage because there was this other force. We were allied. Yeah. Now suddenly we're just like everybody else. We've got a young child. We have all this debt. It's not special time. I can, as someone who, who went through cancer for two years, I totally can relate to this. Like your time is, and she said they needed some way to kind of both hold on and let go to the past. Yeah. And the stethoscope began that, that you can put it on the shelf. You can not have it when you don't want to have it, but you can look over the psychologist called social snacking. Like that's, there's something about having a memento from a loved yeah. one. So we use mementos, we use rituals. That's, this is all the part of saying goodbye. We're gonna take another break right now. More with Bruce Feiler in a moment. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm talking today with Bruce Feiler, the author of seven New York Times bestselling books. His new one is called Life in the Transitions. It tells the stories of hundreds of people that Bruce interviewed to learn how they'd coped with major life changes, losing a job, getting a divorce, and more. 
His book tells their stories and offers us insights about how we can come out better people after experiencing what he calls life quakes. As we continued our conversation, I asked Bruce to describe the three stages of recovering from a life quake he'd discovered as he researched the book. And I told him that given the pandemic, I thought the book couldn't have been better timed. Well, first of all, thank you for saying that. Just to kind of blitz through for a second. Yes, there's the long goodbye where you say goodbye to the old you. It's hard. Look at the pandemic. We all thought we were going back for the first few months. We now know we're not going back. That leads us to the messy middle, which is the process of shedding habits and creating new ones. People use astonishing acts of creativity. They sing, paint, dance. Like what happened when the pandemic came? We, (laughs) what was was the cliche? What did everybody do when the pandemic came? They started baking, right? We were going to sourdough our way through the pandemic. I may have been the (laughs) only person in America who was not surprised because that act of imagining a loaf of bread is the act kind of is the first step to imagining um, a new life. And then there's this new beginning where you unveil your new life. Everybody's good at parts of this and bad at parts of this. And yes, I try to walk you through it, but I want to address what you said. This book has now been out for a few months. It did become a top 10 New York Times bestseller. I think I'm, I'm blessed and fortunate in that regard. But why did it touch such a nerve? The number one reaction to this book is, I'm not alone. Yeah, Like I felt, I remember, I I am blocks, Bill, from where I I lived when I had cancer a decade ago. And I remember sitting in the house I was living at the time had a, a, um, um, oh, like a galley window kind of thing. And there was a window seat and I would sit on the window seat and I would look out and I would look down at people walking on the street and I was on crutches, as I said, for two years. And I would say, you know, you, you know how to walk. Like, you don't have cancer. Like, you don't know what it feels. Like, you're just rolling the stroller to the playground. And you don't have this feeling. It was this incredible feeling of isolation, of disconnection, of being alone and sort of angry and upset and just confused. But what we're in now, this collective involuntary life quake of the pandemic, the pandemic is the first collective involuntary life quake in a century. So I think just to make a couple of observations about that, there's good and bad about it. I think the good is we're having a collective experience and we are, we are now being reminded <laughs> that we share this planet, <laughs> that we are in a, in, a, you know, in a networked age. We are in a situation where if the old line, the first, the original line of chaos theory, right, which is the butterfly flaps its wings in Brazil and there's a tornado in Texas. Well, guess what? A butterfly flaps its wings in Wuhan and you know my kids can't go to school in Brooklyn. So we, it's a reminder that we share this planet together and that we are connected. And it's also a reminder that you're going through a life quake and she's going through a life quake and he's going through a life quake and it makes us a lot more empathetic. But there's also, I think, a a downside to the collectivity and that is the following. And that is that it looks like we're all going through it together and we are, but the truth is, the back to the thing I said earlier, which was also kind of a secondary point in my book that's become, I'd say, primary now that it's out in the world, which is the life quake can be voluntary or involuntary, but the life transition must be voluntary because the the way you're going to respond to this, you may focus on move, right? There's a thing in my book, 61% of people move. I don't know about you, Bill, 61% of my percent of my conversation, someone's talking about moving. Okay. So somebody else may think I'm, I want to deepen my relationship 
Somebody may say, I want to get more religious or less religious. Somebody may say, I'm trapped with somebody who drinks too much and I need to get out of this bad marriage. So everybody's responding in a different way. So we think we're going through it together, but actually it's a reminder that we're different. But to go back to your point of collectivity, and this takes us back and where I want to go with that question is the thing that you pushed me on so thoughtfully, brilliantly, I, I would say, to connect this to the earlier parts of my life. Again, I thought this was different from the religion and those parts of my life. But if you look at the great stories of all religions, they all have these stories of collective identity being formed in the most difficult times. And then let's go one step further, because this is your wheelhouse, whether it's Odysseus going on the journey, whether it's you know Orpheus going into the underworld. Time and again, these stories, the great stories that have survived century after century, millennia, millennium after millennium, are stories of when we go into that dark place, confront that wolf, and have to figure out how to become the hero that overcomes the adversity. We all have these stories that we have read and, and, and loved. And I and love so, the fact that you talk about them so eloquently. And so as we end here, I will say, let's go back inside that brain for a second where, you're, where the story of who you are is living. And we know now that our brains have mirror neurons. And we know that when you tell a story, my brain is processing that ending. And when there's a surprise, I have to pay more attention and I'm learning how to tell my own story. Yeah. And that's fundamentally what this is about. So my message, you know, at the end here for me is that that story that's going around in your head, spend more time listening to that story, spend more time thinking how to cultivate that story. And what I want to say to you is whatever kept you awake last night, or you were drinking coffee and looking out the window and worrying about this morning, I was where you are. And I went out and met all these people who frankly were many of them in a lot worse. And it's not just that they gave me hope, which they did. It's that they showed me their actual things you can do to reclaim your story, to get through this moment, to say goodbye, to surpass, you know, to clean up the messy middle and to unveil your new self. So if you come on this journey with me, you're going to be changed, you're going to be helped, but ultimately you're going to be reminded that whatever wolf you're facing right now, you can get around over or through that wolf. We can get through this together. Way over yonder. Bruce Feiler's book is Life is in the Transitions, Mastering Change at Any Age. I talked with him for an event sponsored by the William Bremen Jewish Heritage Museum. And our thanks go out to Leslie Gordon and the others at the museum for generously allowing us to broadcast this conversation on Political Rewind. That's all the time we have for today, but we'll be back with another Political Rewind tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, please wear a mask, and think about when you're going to vote in the Senate runoff. I'll leave you now with Carol King.
when I get there.